from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. And today we are looking at one of the premier figures of early Christianity, perhaps the most important, and it's not Jesus, it's Paul. Two biblical scholars have recently published books on Paul, and they will be my guests for the next two weeks. The first is N.T. Wright, and the second is James Tabor. N.T. Wright is the former Bishop of Durham in the Church of England and one of the world's leading Bible scholars. Uh, Dr. Wright is currently Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews. His first three titles in Christian Origins and the Question of God series are The New Testament and the People of God, Jesus and the Victory of God, and the Resurrection of the Son of God. His latest book is about Paul. It is called Paul and the Faithfulness of God, and he's speaking with me via Skype while traveling in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Dr. Wright, to Religion for Life. Thank you. It's very good to be with you, and nice to be back in Seattle, too. I haven't been here for a while. Well, the writing project has taken a great deal of your time and energy, hasn't it? Uh, uh, tell me about how this book came to be and how it fits into the larger series of books you're writing on Christian origins. Right. Uh, the idea of writing a big book on Paul is one that has been with me um, most of my adult life. I did my doctoral research on Paul in the 1970s, and I've published several things, articles and smaller books about Paul but I've always had in mind that one day it would be really good to pull it all together, and particularly because there's been so many different debates about Paul over the last few years, or the last decades, um, how to analyze him, what his key ideas are, how they all fit together or not, as the case may be. And I've long wanted to be able to pull all this together into one coherent statement. I had the chance four years ago to spend some months of sabbatical time in Princeton at the Center of Theological Inquiry in um, in Princeton. Uh, that was late 2009. And when I'd finished that, um, I still didn't have the book finished. So I actually then accepted the offer to go to St. Andrews rather than staying in Durham, which I'd expected to do. And so the last three years in St. Andrews, I've been able, as well as working on other projects, to, to complete this big one on Paul. It's the biggest book I've written. It's uh, pushing 1,700 pages in two volumes. And the way it fits into the series is this. The first volume, New Testament and the People of God, is a kind of general introduction to how to read the New Testament, to how to understand the world of the first century in the, the time and place of Jesus and Paul and so on. Then the book on Jesus is what it says on the tin. It's about Jesus himself as a historical study of who he was, what he thought he was doing. The resurrection of the Son of God is a big study of what actually happened at Easter and how the uh, Jews and the early Christians and indeed the early pagans thought about life after death and all that stuff and how in the light of that we can understand the resurrection of Jesus. And that kind of sets the whole thing up to say, well, um, in the middle of very early Christianity, we have this character called Paul, who is often difficult and gritty, and I think he was at the time as well, but he is our best evidence for early Christianity. So if we're to understand it, we really have to go after him pretty thoroughly, and that's what I've tried to do. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about the significance of Paul. He, he's huge. A big hunk of the New Testament is attributed to Paul. His theology uh, shaped the, the life of the church. If Paul hadn't existed, uh, what would Christianity even be like, or would it even be? 
That, that's a it's a great question, and uh, it's it's you know historians love what if questions because they're kind of a thought experiment. That one is very difficult because um, yes, Paul had a towering intellect. I've often said to folk that um, he ranks in terms of ancient thinkers along with either Plato or Aristotle or figures like St. Augustine, um, and he has this amazing mind where he can pull all sorts of things together from the Jewish world, from what he knows about Jesus, what he believes about Jesus, and then engages with the wider Greco-Roman world of his day, the world of philosophy, politics, religion, and so on. And it's, that's that I've, what I've tried to map in this book. And yes, if you take Paul out, it's not just that the New Testament is a lot thinner, but he was the one who articulated and hammered out and thought through and figured out what we now call the beginning of this thing called Christian theology. He was the first one, so far as we know, actually to put together the idea that it really matters for this new community that, uh, of Jesus followers, that we understand in a fresh way uh, who, what we mean by the word God, who the God of Israel really is, the God we now see in Jesus, and who this um, strange um, force called the Holy Spirit actually is and what that's all about. So Paul set the church off um, as a community, as a united community, as a holy community, and he struggled to maintain that unity and that holiness. It's very difficult then as, as it is now. But in order to do that, he developed this uh, extraordinary passion for thinking things through, um, which has been a characteristic of the church at its best ever since. So that yet without him, who knows? And that's why um, Christians tend to believe in this thing called providence or um, divine overruling or something, that actually this, this was how it was meant to be. Let's take a moment and talk about uh, sources. There are uh, 13 letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament. Seven of them, scholars are in consensus that uh, they are Paul's. Three, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Second Thessalonians, some scholars have doubted were written by Paul. Three others, First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, the pastorals, are even more suspect for some scholars. Where are you on this? Of these 13 letters, which ones in your mind are authentically Paul's letters? I think the first thing to say is that the scholarly judgment which you quote comes to us from uh, 19th century Germany, from the liberal Protestant movement of the so-called Tübingen School, uh, with characters like Ferdinand Christian Bauer, one of the great Pauline scholars of the Germany of the 19th century. And within that liberal Protestant German world, there were certain things which they really wanted Paul to be saying, and certain things which they really didn't want Paul to be saying, didn't fit with their, their overall picture. And so there was a major prejudice against Ephesians and Colossians particularly, because they had a strong view of the church and a high view of Jesus, and also a prejudice against Second Thessalonians, because the German world of that day, and the liberal Protestant world of that day, didn't know what to do with what we now call Jewish apocalyptic. One of the ironies of present-day scholarship is that the tradition of saying that those letters are inauthentic, which goes back to that time, has remained as a kind of knee-jerk scholarly reaction, even though there are very few 19th century German liberal Protestants around anymore. And uh, I take the view that one of my Oxford colleagues articulated many years ago, that every generation or so, metaphorically, the chess pieces need to go back on the table and the game has to restart. And I think uh, whenever somebody takes a big look at Paul, a whole big um, survey of Paul, as I've tried to do, then it's important actually to keep all the chess pieces in play and see how your analysis plays out. And in my analysis, though I have, in order to communicate with the scholars who still maintain this seven-letter central corpus, 
all the main arguments in my book are rooted in those seven letters. But at point after point after point, I have actually shown that if we take the Paul of those seven letters the way that I'm taking him, then we can see all sorts of reasons why certainly Colossians, certainly Ephesians, certainly Second Thessalonians are in fact by Paul, and that the prejudice against them, which has been sustained over many generations, is often just that. It's a prejudice. Okay, there are some, some interesting arguments as well. When it comes to the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, I have often thought, reading them through again and again in the Greek, that it's 1 Timothy that is the real problem. When we switch from the other Paulines to 1 Timothy, um, the, the, the mood seems to be quite different. The whole writing style is very different. The phrases like um, the phrases to do with Jesus are used in a very different way. I'm perfectly comfortable with the fact that many writers can write in many different styles. And as you said in your kind introduction, I have myself written everything from thousand-page monographs to op-ed pieces in the London Times, and you use a very different style when you're doing those things. And if you're writing for children or if you're writing for a popular audience, you do it very differently from if you're writing a scholarly book and so on. So it's perfectly possible that Paul could have written in different styles, but First Timothy I do regard as still an unsolved puzzle. Second Timothy feels to me much more like the Paul of the other letters, and Titus is somewhere in between. So I haven't actually in my book used 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus in order to establish any points, but I have noted where there are overlaps and things, lines of thought which seem to go out in that direction. But I, I would stress that the, the, um, the decision to uh, leave Ephesians and Colossians and Second Thessalonians on the shelf, which many, many scholars take, is simply a scholarly tradition that's been handed down from 19th century Germany and really needs a whole fresh look in the light of what I think we now can say about the nature of Paul's thought as a whole. Well, thank you. That is very helpful. Uh, and continuing uh, that conversation on sources, uh, recently some scholars have uh, disputed uh, the historicity of the book of Acts, uh, another source for the work of Paul. Would you suggest or uh, regard Acts as reliable history uh, regarding well, Paul? When you say recently, um, the, the, the question marks about Acts have been going on being raised for the last 200 years. Again, this is a classic old German liberal Protestant anxiety. And there was a massive anti-Lucan prejudice in the middle of the 20th century on the part of many German theologians like Henschen and Kaiserman and in, in the Bultmann School. Um, they just did not want acts on board at all. And uh, now there's been a huge pushback against that over the last 20 years. Basically, the jury is still very much out. Um, I have not in my book actually used acts very much because what I'm doing, my book is a study of Paul's letters and if Acts helps us to get an overall context, that's well and good. But um, I'm not actually basing anything in terms of my analysis of Paul's thought on it. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is N.T. Wright, uh, author of the new book on Paul, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, uh, just released in uh, November of 2013. Let's talk a little bit about Paul himself, uh, Dr. Wright. What kind of person was Paul? From what you know about him, what was his passion and what was his vision? Um, Paul was a, a classic type of Second Temple Jew. That is to say, he grew up in a very devout Jewish home. Clearly, from everything he writes, he knew the Jewish scriptures, the, the, the scriptures of ancient Israel, extremely well, pretty certainly in both Greek and Hebrew. And he had pondered them long and hard. And particularly, he was of this strict um, group call, called themselves the Pharisees, um, and who had this great agenda that if they could persuade Israel 
um, both themselves and others, to keep the ancient law of Israel yet more fully and perfectly, then this might actually help to hasten the coming of the great new day of justice and joy and peace and liberation for Israel, which they had been waiting for. And Paul was therefore living in a great long story, the covenant story of Israel, waiting for Israel's God to do the new thing that he'd promised. And all we know about him suggests that he had a very vigorous and, as he would say, zealous personality, that when he grasped something, he was able both to understand it and to uh, seek to implement it with lots of energy and enthusiasm. And he seems to have done that in his pre, in the days before he met Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. And uh, equally after that, with, with all the excitement of believing that Jesus really was Israel's Messiah and that it was his job, Paul's job, um, to make this Messiah known, not only among his fellow Jews, but more specifically in the wider non-Jewish world of the day. And so Paul um, has this kind of relentless driving um, uh, personality, where, uh, at the same time very human, very vulnerable, very very tender sometimes when he writes about love and when he expresses his love for the people who have become Jesus followers through his work. Um, his emotions are very, very much on the surface, so we can actually get a very, a very sharp portrait of, of a man who one suspects that then as now, some people found him utterly exciting and endearing, and other people were very suspicious of him. That's the kind of reactions that a personality like that often gets. Well, you know, I was, I was leading to that question. Uh, Paul leaves uh, many people a little flat. Uh, he, he is uh, some. He can be difficult to read. His his words have been used to keep uh, women in submissive roles. Uh, historically, in the United States, uh, Paul was used as religious sanction for slavery. Uh, he's cited for those who promote uncritical patriotism, and he's used to deny uh, equality for gay and lesbian people. How should how, how has Paul been misread? Uh, maybe that's an obvious question. But uh, how how should we read Paul in light of contemporary? temporary uh, problems and challenges. The, the first and most important thing to say is that we must stop this habit of coming to a first century text with our immediate questions because we are bound to misread it. It's like coming to a Shakespeare play and pulling out five lines here and half a speech there and saying, hey, well, this would have given license to Hitler or whatever it is. And the answer is, sorry, Shakespeare was writing in a different century. And the only wise thing to do is to listen to the whole play to see how the characters in the whole play work out what the plot is basically about. The, the things that Paul was writing were not actually primarily about any of the issues which you've just listed. Those issues are, of course, important. They're important to us. But if we want to understand what Paul would say about them, we have to stop this bad habit of kind of proof texting. And of course, in fundamentalism, people have proof texted. They've had their view of what Christianity is all about. And they've gone to Paul and they've taken two verses here and half a paragraph there. And they've said, there you are. Paul supports us. And then, of course, people have in, in wider society have done the same thing. They've gone to Paul and they've pulled out a little bit here, a little bit there. And of course, yes, Paul is a difficult text, just like Plato and Aristotle are difficult texts, just like Cicero and Seneca are difficult texts. But as with anything that's difficult, whether it's a Wagner opera or a Shakespeare play, um, those who actually give themselves to it come back with a light in their eyes and say, oh my goodness, there's a whole world there. And if I had simply come to this text looking for answers to the two or three questions that were buzzy in my world, I would never have understood what this opera or this play or whatever was all about. So my whole project is to say, let's just actually put our questions on hold for a bit 
and listen to the much larger themes about God's justice, about hope, um, about who Jesus really was. And in the light of that, we will see that again and again, Paul has been misread. Um, that's not to say that he doesn't say some things which would be deeply unacceptable in our own day, but then that's to be expected. Um, I think Aristotle says some things which are deeply unacceptable in our own day, but we don't for that reason stop reading him and studying to understand philosophy and, and so on. So that I think we, we need the bigger view. There's a kind of a humility before a great text. And the danger with our society is that we are so keen on instant answers to the things which are buzzing in our minds that we don't come to the great texts with that readiness to let them show us an entire new world which might actually enlarge our vision of everything. And he writes, uh, my guest on Religion for Life, author of Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about Paul and his Jewish heritage. Where would you um, see Paul, or how would Paul see himself in relation to uh, the Roman Empire and the theology of empire? What was, how did he respond to that, and what, what was the situation for him? That, that's a wonderful question, and it's been something which has been much uh, discussed in the last 20 years, which is interesting in itself, because before the last 20 years, hardly any Pauline scholars were talking about this at all. So it's become quite a new fashion or fad even in Pauline studies, and I've contributed a bit to that myself. I think one of the things which surprises people when they have their eyes opened to it is to realize that in Paul's world, the phrase son of God would refer quite un unambiguously to a Roman uh, to the uh, Roman emperor of the day, uh, Augustus mm -hmm. or, or Nero or whoever it was, and also that the phrase, the word gospel, euvangelion in Greek, was regularly used to announce the good news of somebody becoming emperor after the death of the previous one, and that uh, ideas like justice and peace and salvation were regularly connected with these are the benefits which the empire has brought you. And that in every big town and city around the Roman world, you would see these symbols of imperial rule and imperial cult. And some of the main cities where Paul went, both in Galatia and in Corinth and Thessalonica and obviously in Rome itself, were full of signs of the empire and of the divinization of the emperor. So that when Jesus then says, no, sorry, when Paul then says Jesus is Lord, many of us conclude that one of the things he means, not the only thing he means, but one of the things he means is that Caesar is not Lord or that the Lordship of Caesar is being relativized or called into question. Now, there's a problem here, again, about thinking into the ancient world when we are modern Western persons, because ever since the 18th century, modern Western politics has tended to polarize on a kind of a what we think of as a left-right spectrum, where we think of anarchy on the leftward end and tyranny on the rightward end. And America has one version of that polarization, France has another, Britain has another, but we all kind of live on that sort of spectrum. And one of the hard things for us to realize is first, that the Roman Empire simply didn't have that spectrum. That's not how politics worked at all. It's much more complicated than that. And that the Jewish, the ancient Jewish critique of pagan empire, going back to books like Isaiah and Daniel, and then lots of the books that were written between the Testaments, that the ancient Jewish critique was not that power was a bad thing in itself, but that the one God who had made the whole world wanted his world to be properly governed, but would hold governors and rulers to account. And this idea of God uh, setting up governments, but then uh, criticizing or judging them when they got it wrong or tyrannized or didn't do their job properly or didn't do justice, 
This idea is much more subtle and complicated than our modern politics will allow. So some people today say, well, there you are. Paul says in Romans that you should obey the governing authorities. Therefore, Paul is a status quo man. Paul is just happy with things the way they are because politics is irrelevant to him. He's talking about spirituality instead. And other people say, no, absolutely not. Paul says Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar isn't, which means in our language he is against empire, simply. And and both of those are far too simple. We need to go back into the world of the first century and understand how their political systems worked, how the Jewish critique of pagan empire worked, and then to understand this new movement within that Jewish world, which was Paul saying, Jesus is Israel's Messiah, therefore he is the world's true Lord, therefore he demands your absolute allegiance, not Caesar. And I, in the book, have tried to explore both what that meant for Paul and what impact that would have had in Paul's world. Well, thinking of taking that then within the communities uh, that Paul founded and the communities that he wrote letters to, uh, what were they like? Uh, some have suggested they might have been, in a sense, a, a communities of resistance um, uh, to perhaps to, to Roman violence. Uh, you mentioned that it, that's, that it might include that, but it might be more than that. Uh, what were these communities like and, and what did the people do uh, when they met together and what did Paul want them to do? Okay, the, the communities that Paul that found, well, Paul would have said that they were founded by the Holy Spirit, but founded through his work, um, as he says himself, in most of them, they were uh, small, they were not powerful, they only had a few rich people, and most of the people there would be on the, on the poor end of the scale, and be quite a few slaves. And so they were not in a position to do anything much in the way of what we would call serious resistance. However, one of the things people don't realize is that in the Roman world, the world of the larger Roman Empire, where more or less all of Paul's life and ministry was was lived out, um, the Roman authorities and the local authorities were very suspicious of any groups that met secretly or privately. We have evidence, for instance, that even in some cities, the fire brigade would be politically suspect because these guys were were powerful people. They had to be to do their job and they would meet behind closed doors and and get together as a club. And the civic authorities, even though they needed fire brigades, were suspicious of them simply for getting together. And of course, therefore, if Paul's converts would meet together on a Sunday to break bread together as they did, and and if if their neighbors would hear that that these strange people were coming together and that there were women there on equal terms and there were slaves joining with free people, this would be seen as very socially subversive. The Roman Empire was a very stratified society. Men did men things, women did women things, slaves and free were very, very clearly demarcated. And suddenly, here are these people getting together and we're not sure what they get up to behind the closed doors, but they talk about loving one another. Well, that sounds suspicious for a start. And they talk about sharing things. It sounds like some very odd, in our language, is almost a communist sect. And so people would be worried, and they were worried, and especially because they didn't join in with the local religion. And religion in their days, another thing which is very difficult for us to understand, religion for them was not what people do with their private life. Religion was what people did with their public life. Religion was the continuation of social policy by other means. And and what that means is that uh, in any town, any uh, culture right across Paul's world, the local magistrates would often be priests as well, and vice versa. 
and the gods were seen as part of the fabric of the city or the town. And so you did the sacrifices and you, you inspected animal entrails to see what to do with your civil policy, because that's how the whole society kept stable and firm and so on. And if Paul is coming in, telling people about Jesus, and the result is that here are these people meeting in secret, cutting across existing social and cultural um, barriers and boundaries, and not joining in with the local civic cult, whatever that is, including the local version of the imperial cult, then this is bound to be seen as subversive. That's not to say that the Christians were plotting to overthrow Caesar. They certainly weren't. They weren't in any sort of position even to dream of that. And in any case, Paul is quite clear that that's not the sort of thing they should be doing. It's a much bigger subversion than just plotting to have a, a coup or something. That, that's kind of trivial. That just exchanges one sort of human power for another. Paul has these communities as witnesses to Jesus, who is the real power, who is the real authority, and it's a different sort of power. And that's something which our world finds very difficult to understand for the same reason that they did. We know what power is. You send in the tanks if you want to sort something out. And that's precisely what in the Gospels and in Paul we discover that the true God does not do. And these communities then had a different sort of power, a different sort of subversion. And it would be wonderful, actually, if the church could even glimpse that again in our own day. Well, that, that we're just about out of time, Dr. Wright, but that leads me to my last question for you. In a slightly different direction, you've been a theologian uh, for the church. You are a theologian for the church. What do you see as pressing challenges for the church today, and how can an appreciation of Paul uh, empower the church in these challenges? I think if Paul were to come back today, the thing that would shock and horrify him right across the world is not only the disunity of Christians, but the collusion with disunity and the idea that disunity doesn't matter. Every letter that Paul wrote that we have from him has the unity of the church as one of its major themes. Of course, he talks about lots of other things as well, but reconciliation between those who follow Jesus is absolutely basic to what he's about again and again. And there's uh, a theological reason for this. If there is one God and one Lord, there should be one people. How can you have more than one? But also there's a kind of a social and cultural and political thing going on here as well, that if the church is to be the community that models a different way of being human, a new way of being human, then if there are lots of different churches all doing it slightly differently, the world looks on and scratches its head and says, why should we care? What are they like? What are they about? Now, uh, that, I think, is a major challenge, and actually the churches have avoided it by reading Paul in various ways, which uh, have somehow marginalized that. And going right back to where we were a little while ago, when you asked me about Ephesians and Colossians and so on, one of the great themes of Ephesians and Colossians is precisely the unity of the church, and I think that's one of the reasons those letters have been marginalized in modern Protestant scholarship, because Protestants have been frightened and perhaps with good reason. But if they took the unity of the church seriously, they would actually have to ask some hard questions about their own polity in relation to the larger churches, both the Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, and of course the Roman Catholic Church. So these are huge questions and very difficult ones. Um, but it seems to me Paul would have us address them because for him, the unity and the holiness of the church were absolutely vital. And it's for him as for us, it's reasonably easy to get unity if you're not bothered about holiness. It's reasonably easy to have holiness if you're not bothered about unity. Getting the two together is difficult. It was difficult for him. It was difficult for us. But that's, I think, what he would say is absolutely what we ought to be focusing on. 
N.T. Wright has been my guest on Religion for Life. He's the author of the just-released Paul and the Faithfulness of God. Dr. Wright, thank you so much for this work and for spending time with me today on Religion for Life. You're very welcome. It's been good talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Sheck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about this program, including links to podcasts, at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. Be well.